It does not appear the same one day to the next. The pieces are continually shifting in life. All I need to say to you is the word coronavirus, COVID-19. And you can understand that in the matter of a week, how many things have changed. Life as we know it does quickly change. Who would have thought that countries would actually be locking down their citizens? That major events would be canceled, that churches would be closed, that travel bans to Europe would exist, that cruise ships are grounded, that schools are closed, that this is not simply an epidemic, but they call it a pandemic that panic and fear are off the charts, and none of this we would have even given much thought to a week or so ago. What we do know about life is that it does not stay the same, that none of us live in a vacuum. We don't live in um, shrink-wrappedville. We live in reality of things that are constantly in flux, It's kind of like the weather in Ohio, is it not? If you don't like it, just wait and it will change. I mean, who among us would have thought we would have snow on the ground even three days ago? But life changes. And in a matter of moments, it can do that. You're in the restaurant and you're enjoying your meal and there it is, a hair in the soup. And all of a sudden, your entire meal goes out the door. Or it's the sound of a siren that grabs your attention, or the cry of a child, or even more gross, a stink bug in your bed. And now everything changes. To no one's surprise, God orchestrated this new study for us in the book of Job. In this old book of wisdom, in this Old Testament, reminds us that God is in absolute control of all things at all times and that life can change in a heartbeat. And we see that and we shall see that this morning where in one day the awesomeness of that particular day changes to the awfulness all in one day. The first five verses we looked at last week identifying the blessings of this man named Job from the land of Uz. And his character and his conduct carry a ringing endorsement from no less than God himself. But things down low are about to begin to change as there's a dramatic shift in the circumstances. And what once was will no longer be. This is the constancy that we don't always happen and have in our life as constancy gives way to commotion as that peaceful plane ride that you were experiencing now introduces to you turbulence. This is Job's world as the settledness is turned upside down and the perfect storm comes forward for a trial. Verses 6 through 22 will be our text this morning in chapter 1 of Job. When you tell a story that has uh, an enjoyable beginning, something like once upon a time, you tell that story and what comes next is going to be wonderful things as the picket fence and the magical moments and the memorable moments and the magnificent moments come our way. But look at verse 6, something changes. Verses 1 through 5 is the once upon a time story, the wonderful moments that are taking place. But then verse 6 introduces a certain phrase. Now there was 
a certain day. When that phrase comes your way in the first chapter, something is about to change. And it all begins in the unseen world above. Verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. There is a certain grouping called the sons of God. These are angels as they stand in the presence of God. We know they cannot be men because no one can see God and live. And so here are the angels and they come to present themselves. But who comes with them is also Satan as he comes among them. Unlike the cartoons today and the fairy tales that seem to portray Satan as that mystical character in a red suit and a pitchfork, the Bible paints Satan entirely different. And here in Job 1, we encounter the existence of Satan. While we can tend to blame everything on God and who among us hasn't done that at times, like, well, Satan made me do it, Satan, Satan, Satan. Sometimes we can go to the extreme of blaming everything on him. Could I caution us to not go to the other extreme? The other extreme is to discount his activity and his persuasion in this world. And here in this opening chapter, it's his presence and his procedures that begin to immediately insert themselves into the thick of the situation, into the lives of people in particular, and specifically with regards to Job. Scripture does not shy away from Satan's involvement in our interest, and we shouldn't either. The Apostle Paul long ago wrote to the church at Corinth, and he cautioned, cautioned Christians about this evil one, and he said, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Beloved, do not be ignorant of Satan. Do not be uninformed about him. He is a dark foe who is absolutely no friend of ours. And here in these opening verses, we encounter his existence. And as we glance a little closer, we discover some of his tactics. According to verse 6, he has an audience with God. Think about that. Satan has an audience with God. Not a surprise because the angels have an audience with God. They have access to him. And who is Satan but a fallen angel? And so he has an audience with God. Nevertheless, he is one who approaches God with disdain and contempt. And so God asks him. Love the question. Notice the question that he asks Satan in verse 7. Where you been? As if God has no idea where Satan has been. I love the questions of Scripture, especially when God is asking them, because that is not to inform anybody but us. God has Already, he knows everything about Satan and where Satan has been. And so that is not to inform God like, hey, Satan, tell me where you've been because I just kind of lost sight of you. I kind of was watching over here and I can only see one thing at one time. And so where were you? Not true at all. God knows everything. Satan knows only one thing. And so God asked the question for our information. Where have you been? Satan's answer is one of instruction to us and not awareness to God. Look what he says in verse 7, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Here's the reality is that the evil one has freedom to travel wherever he desires in this world. He's not even subject to our limitations. 
presently and our constraints in this country. He has freedom to travel wherever he desires. No wonder that Ephesians 2 says, calls him the prince of the power of the air. And Ephesians 6 calls him the ruler of the darkness of this world. This is who he is as he wreaks havoc in our lives and on this earth. After God draws attention to the stellar, devoted life of his servant Job, then Satan seeks to throw a wrench into the works with his sarcastic response at the end of verse 9. Notice at the end of verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Don't you just love people who throw rain on your parade? Who simply discount what you have accomplished? Who seem to write off what you have just said? This is what Satan does. This is his role. This is his job, especially when it comes to the followers of God. That he will discount our righteous acts before God and he will draw attention to our unrighteous ones. Of course Job is a good guy. I mean, who wouldn't be a good guy when God, you are surrounding him and protecting him and blessing him? Life's easy for Job. Can you see what's going on here? God is always for us, but Satan is always against us. God is our friend and Satan is our foe. God defends us while Satan opposes us. So do not be deceived. There is nothing good about darkness. And here is Satan who has even the audacity to command, to demand that God take action in verse 11 against Job. But now stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now don't miss the wording here. Here is Satan Satan telling God to stretch out his hand against Job. That's a rather bold appeal. He is double-daring God to take away that hedge of protection and to replace it now with a hedge of hardship. That's what Satan does as he seeks to tempt us. And he doesn't back away even when it comes to God as he seeks to tempt God. Remember, Jesus Christ was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and Jesus comes out of the wilderness and who does he encounter? Well, he's already encountered Satan, but now he encounters him again. And what does Satan do? Satan seeks to tempt the Son of God about his hunger. No different here is Satan even seeks to tempt God the Father in his plan of protection around Job and to dare that God would instead replace it with adversities to such an outlandish request by Satan. Listen to the response of the Almighty God, verse 12. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that is in your hand is in your power, or excuse me, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In other words, I'll allow it, but it stops when it comes to his body. You cannot step beyond those boundaries. And with that seeming victory in hand, Satan leaves. He exits. And he is about to bring forth the war of wars on Job. None of us is immune to tragedy. Some here have lost a loved one. 
Some here have had miscarriages. Some of us have had economic downturns. Tragedy plays no favorites, but I would suggest to you there is no one who will have experienced what Job will experience in such a very short time in this chapter and into next chapter. Four mega trials are about to confront Job. Check out the opening words of verse 13. They introduce for us this particular phrase, verse 13, now there was a day. That phrase is not alone. Drop down to verse 16. One just like it says, while he was still speaking. Verse 17, while he was still speaking. Verse 18, while he was still speaking. That particular phrase is going to introduce calamity. And I'm kind of guessing after a couple times of hearing the same phrase, Job is probably going to begin to duck when he hears that phrase now about that time when someone was still speaking. What we see in this very raw paragraph in chapter 1 is the expiration of possessions. Job is about to see all of his possessions expire. You know when you buy perishable goods and they have that date stamped on them? You know, good to or sell by. This is Job's possession. The expiration date is going to pass and everything he has is going to vanish. It's going to expire. He's going to lose every single thing. I, uh, one time when our kids were very young, we went to Florida. And it was uh, when we just had our first two kids. And so Jessica was probably about four. Austin was about two. And we went to the beach. And uh, my little guy, Austin... As he got closer to the water, um, he got close enough and he was, actually had his feet in the water. And here comes a little wave and it just knocks him over. The rest of the day, he never went back into that water. Sometimes that's how life happens. That wave hits us and we weren't quite expecting it. The wave is about to hit Job and he is not expecting it. Verse 13, this initial observation, there was a day when his sons and daughters, those of Job, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. As we mentioned back last week in verse 4, this was their regular practice of the sons and daughters getting together and for seven straight days enjoying one another's company as they were feasting with one another. That's the background for then the tsunami that comes in verse 14. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Here's this rapid-fire fashion where an organized band of nomads wage an attack against the possessions of Job. And here, according to the text, they pilfer his 500 oxen and his 500 donkeys, as well as some of the household helpers. This one servant escapes to give the disastrous news. In one heartbeat, one-eleventh of his possessions have been ravished and part of his household. Before he even has time to gather any more facts and hear any more details and even think about a response to it, guess what happens? Wave number two hits, verse 16. While he was still speaking, 
another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While the first servant is still speaking about this devastation, here comes the second servant, and they, this servant gives the incredibly hard news of this horizontal assault, this vertical strike as the fire of God falls from heaven. This rain of fire, perhaps brimstone, descends out of nowhere and incinerates all the sheep and all the servants except one, the one who is standing before him sharing the dreadful news. Think about this. In these, just these first two trials, 70% of his animals have been wiped out and perhaps as much as 50% of his household servants. Before he can comprehend the devastation and the significance of it, wave number three hits, verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away. Yes, and kill the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Here's another troop of transients, not the uh, the Sabians, but now the Chaldeans. And they launch this plan of offensive attack against Job's remaining possessions, his camels, seizing all 3,000 of them and then killing all the servants that that are caring for them. So in one day, in these first three trials, Job has lost all 11,000 of his animals, and his very large household of helps has been decimated. For Job, it would be the stock market crashing. It would be the flattening of his portfolio. It would be the vanishing of his domestic support. He has lost it all. Everything is gone. Everything that the world says is important is now gone. What else could happen? There couldn't be anything left that could happen when a man loses his possessions. But the worst is actually about to happen. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, Another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young men, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. All ten of his adult children perish. No more moments will the father have to enjoy, to enjoy his children. His posterity dissipates. No more moments of joy with his children. Every single earthly thing that matters to him is gone. Think about that. Everything you would have is just gone. And you look around and you have nothing. It is all gone Everything that this world says that is important and everything that is important is now gone. Job has truly lost it all. That description earlier in verse 3 that ends with the greatest man in the east is now he is the least of all the people of the east. Nothing remains. This is the brunt of what he has experienced of having lost it all. His herds, his household are completely barren. This is the collision that he has experienced in his own life. And the drama seems to heighten itself with how the passage is structured here. The fact that it all happens in one day escalates the drama. 
the escape of one servant for each one of those four trials just kind of introduces an eerie moment, an eerie thought, kind of creepy. And that such calamity occurs horizontally from the raids of the Sabians and the Chaldeans and then vertically from the fire of God and then the winds that are coming in and the introduction of the elements of creation just are a total destructive force against Job. But what really seems to separate everything is the introduction of verse 13. Let us go back to verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Folks, can I just help us to look at this passage a little differently? As I've said to you a couple weeks back, there are many misperceptions we have about the book of Job, and I would suggest mainly because of ignorance that we don't delve into all 42 chapters. We we read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and go to chapter 42. We read through this devastation so quickly and kind of walking away saying, I'm glad it wasn't me. We forget the speeches that go back and forth between Job and his three friends. And actually, the most important speech is not even God's speech, I would suggest to you, but the one that comes before God's speech, which is Elihu's. But we go to chapter 42, and it all works together. It's kind of like Disney. You know, everything is restored. The white fence is repainted. Everything is returned to grandeur at the end. And, oh, it all works out. Good, I'm moving on to the next book. Oh, it's the Psalms. I would suggest to you, we need to slow down at times. We need to pause. We need to notice when things are out of order or seem, why are they there? And that would be my suggestion with verse 13. Why is that verse there? Well, because it comes after 12 and before 14, right? Why is verse 13 there? What does that help? What does that contribute to the text? Because verse 13, the very thing it says, is repeated later in verse 18. So why put it there and there? And why insert it and then do nothing with it? It's inserted in verse 13. Now the certain day, the sons and daughters are gathering together. And then it's ignored because trial number one has nothing to do with that. Trial number two has nothing to do with that. Trial number three has nothing to do with it. Why is it here? I, I love to ask the text questions. Because, listen, my human questions are not going to cause divine scripture to fall apart and God is like ask questions I'm big enough God's big enough to handle your questions and so we must ask and we should ask the text questions that the text is not going to wilt under our human contemplations so why is this verse here Let me give you some thoughts, some reflections. Number one, it paints the picture that this was just another normal day. It's just another normal day. The sons and the daughters were gathering together. It's just another normal day. But don't you know when you have a normal day and catastrophe happens that that even makes the catastrophe even greater? That when you're just not expecting anything and boom, there's the water, the wave that hits you, knocks you over, you weren't expecting it, that the collision is even greater because you weren't expecting this was just a normal day and maybe that's just the point it sets us up it sets even job up to to not expect the unexpected and don't trials typically come when you don't expect them secondly 
It draws attention in this particular scenario as if this scene in verse 13 is the potential catalyst for what transpires next. Listen very carefully. That this single scenario, verse 13, seems to fuel what comes next or suggest to us or introduce or prompt the trials that come. And could it be that Job's policy of back in verse 4, his policy of offering up sacrifices for his sons and daughters because maybe they have sinned, that potentially the sins of these children are what's prompting what's going to come next? Is it possible? Third, this verse tends to heighten the hurt of losing your very own family members by repeating it twice in this paragraph in verse 13 and verse 18. Am I, can, I, can I be as crass to say, when you lose a friend, that hurts, but when you lose your family, that really hurts. When we find out that someone else is a grandparent, we rejoice with them. But when I'm a grandparent, I'm doubly rejoicing. When one of our folks loses a loved one, it hurts us. But when you lose your own loved one, it doubly hurts. This is, I believe, heightening the hurt. Perhaps number four. It informs our actions that nothing we do will supersede God's actions. Can I, can I be so brunt as to tell you that as wise as we need to be in this time of coronavirus, that nothing we do is going to change the plan from God's vantage point? Are you okay with that? Now, I'm not suggesting that you go and do foolish things. I am saying you will not ever supersede God's actions. Nothing you do is going to change God's plan. I say that because could it be on this normal day when Job observes his children gathering together and because it's his policy to go and offer sacrifices to God, could it be on this normal day that as he is offering his regular sacrifice for his ten children that he's thinking, I'm in good standing with God and yet this happens? Is it possible sometimes we think if we're in good standing, nothing is going to harm us? And fifth, does not this verse isolate this trial from the other three? In the sense that, you know, when you lose possessions, you can always get those back. But when you lose your family, you will not get them back. And that particular trial, this fourth trial, the loss of his ten children, is going to be very personal and very painful for Job. Whatever the reason, Job experiences this expiration of his possessions, the most excruciated of which is certainly the passing of his own ten children. The text makes that very clear. Our initial response is not always our ultimate response. Can I say that again? Our initial response is not always our ultimate response, and we can be very thankful for that, right? I mean, our knee-jerk reaction to certain things 
is like not always the best, right? But we let time come in. Perspective is regained and our emotions subside and we can look at it a little bit differently now. It's kind of one of the benefits of being a little older. When you're younger, you don't have a whole lot to draw from. You're in the here and now. This is all you have. And now we get a little older, we can kind of see it from a greater perspective, right? Not always, but age allows us to see, oh, I've been down this road before. I'm not going to react as quick this time. But think about it. How did you respond when the news came to you that your aged parent has dementia? That your employer of 20 years no longer needs you? That your teenage daughter is pregnant? That you have been defrauded out of all of your retirement monies? that your spouse no longer wants to stay in the relationship, that COVID-19 is canceling and suspending and limiting about everything. That news and those news bits are devastating at first, are they not? They're hard to wrap our mind around. It seems like the roof is suddenly caved in and the ground is collapsing and our heart stops. But eventually, reason resumes. A breath of fresh air returns. It's our first response, but thankfully it's not our ongoing response. I would ask you this morning, if you were Job, how would you have responded to those four trials? It's one thing to lose your possessions. It's another thing to lose your entire family. All of your kids gone. We have a front row seat to see Job's response. Verse 20. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Without the second half of that verse and without an understanding of the customs of that time, we might, (laughs) on a casual gleaning, kind of think, whoa, Job has really reacted with this angry explosion of tearing his clothes and shaving his head, but that was custom, that was mourning, that was reverence, that was an awakening, that was an awareness to God by Job, that this situation is not beyond God. This is the expression of Job as he lowers himself to the ground, as he lies prostrate before God in a beautiful posture of worship, everything has been lost, and yet he is able to bow down and posture to his God who remains absolutely in control. Instead of cursing God, he continues to commit himself to God. He could have cursed God. God, why? How? And yet he commits himself further to God. Instead of expressing, expressing anguish, he expresses adoration of God. Instead of a hard heart, he has a surrendered heart. And then from that heart come these incredible words. Verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
I came with nothing. I will leave with nothing. God knows what he's doing, even if I don't know what's happening and why it's happening. And even though this is the darkest moment of my life, this is Job worshiping his God, blessing his name. His actions and his words validate his posture of chapter 1, verse 1, that yes, indeed, this is that man, Job, who is blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. It's one thing to that, for that to be said about you. It's another thing when you're living it. It's one thing when you say it. It's another thing when you live it. This is Job. He is backing up who he truly is. And then to make certain, absolutely, of his posture, verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. This is the piety of his expression, only affirming the devotion of his position. He is rightly relating to God even when life seems wrong. I would suggest to you that is the major theme of this book. Rightly relating to God when life seems wrong. And this is Job at the present, rightly relating to God even when life seems wrong. You can fake a lot of things in life, But at this moment, for Job, of utter, sheer destruction, you simply cannot falsify your attitude. Job is the real deal. He doesn't hide behind a mask. He doesn't pretend it's all okay. Four trials and a moment's notice have tested Job, have tempted his resolve, and at such a moment like this, God can truly say, there's my servant Job. That's my guy. And when God says it, wow, because God sees our heart. Three things together that bring the perfect storm for a trial. The existence of Satan, the expiration of our possessions, and then the expression of Job. Or I could make it this way, that the perfect storm for a trial brings in Satan, brings in something that we have, and then invites us in our response. Job evidences outwardly what he is inwardly. Satan is very real. He is not to be glossed over or ignored. He opposes good. He deals deceitfully. And then our possessions that are around us, and make no mistake, folks, Satan loves to work and use our possessions against us. Both in the sense that our possessions can begin to possess us, right? And we get very protective of our possessions and we get guarded about our possessions and we don't want anybody touching our possessions and and then the platform for us. Satan, our possessions, and then introduces us. How will we respond to the trials of life? When a tempter walks in, when our possessions are being tested, when our health is being challenged, how will we respond when the platform is given to us to express ourselves to our great God. But there's something I would suggest to you that we're missing. That I would say to you, the passage is screaming out loud. Let's go back for a moment. The first part of this is the existence of Satan. Go back to verse 10. Notice before the trials ever begin what Satan says. 
what Satan does, the attention he draws us to. Verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. You know what Satan's doing? Satan is acknowledging the God who is. Have you not made a hedge? You have blessed the work. Satan is announcing to God that it is God who is responsible for Job's current standing on earth. And that is absolutely true, that God is good. And that he is good toward his people and that he is absolutely in control of all things at all times and all places. This is Satan acknowledging the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Isn't that sad that Satan acknowledges it and yet so often we don't even do that? We don't even acknowledge the goodness of God and even fear that grips our nation. Are we not acknowledging he is sovereign? He's in control? He is good? He is not suddenly bad and out of control? Here is Satan acknowledging it. Ought not we even more so as the recipients of God's grace? It's not done. Notice what Satan makes request of in the next verse to God. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Even the diabolical, deceitful, deceptive Satan confesses that God is in absolute control. That it's your hand. It must be your hand, God. Maybe this is one time we could learn a lesson from Satan. That if he's acknowledging and confessing the goodness and sovereignty of God, how much more should we? And then there's that messenger, verse 16, that escapes on the second trial. The messenger, verse 16, uh, the fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you You catch the description that the servant paints of the scenario? It is the fire of God. Whether or not it's brimstone or lightning, this messenger inserts God, the fire of God, into this description. To this servant, somehow, someway, God is involved. Could we not acknowledge that somehow, someway, in this situation, we're now facing as a nation, as a world, corona, that God is involved? And then we come to the close of the chapter and Job's response. Notice where Job pivots. Notice who He plants his focus upon, verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That God is good and God cannot be charged with bad. Is it clear to you that in the existence of Satan, in the expiration of Job's possessions, even in the expression of Job, that the entire theme, the common dominant subject that's being weaved throughout this is there is a God who is in absolute control. Whether it's even Satan acknowledging it, the servant acknowledging it, Job himself, that our God is absolutely in control 
And though we don't grasp it all and see it all, doesn't deny that he is. And so in this moment of our life, how are we handling how things are unfolding before us? Are we worried with how things are turning out? Are we even angry at situations that are currently in front of us? Are we not realizing that no matter what comes our way, our God is still with us? He is still on his throne. His plan is still moving forward. That we are not isolated, that we are not alone. And even if we're home right now, live streaming, listening to this, you're not home alone. God is with you. Are we grasping that? Are we questioning the fairness of God and life in light of the circumstances that are happening to us? Could I remind us that even in the darkest night, the light of the world is here. His name is Jesus. And that light of the world is now standing forth in us, giving us a platform to shine our light to a disbelieving world. You know what? I found that the greatest time to grow in your Christian life is in the midst of a trial. And the greatest time to shine your light is when darkness seems the darkest. Could it be that's what's happening right now? Folks, there's a reason God is called our rock. It's because he is unmovable. I had a conversation Friday with... Uh, with a financial advisor. And he's an unbeliever. And as we talked back and forth for a few moments on the phone, then I, I just thought I needed to say this. I said, you know, isn't it interesting, J.D.? Isn't it interesting that, that when there is no God, fear is great? I said, think about it. If you're fishing in a boat, what do you do? You, you, you throw your anchor down so you don't just kind of drift all around. You know, you find a place, you put your anchor down so you're not just waffling here and there. I said, our nation has forgotten that God is our anchor. If there is no God, there is no anchor, and we're going to be tossed to and fro of everything that comes our way. There's a reason he is our rock. There is a reason he is our fortress. He is our protector. Let me tell you, your protection is not handy wipes. Your protection is God. Your protection is not to, well, you know, if, we, if I can just kind of put a plastic thing, plexiglass all around my house, then I'll be good. No, God is your protector. There's a reason why he is called our fortress. There's a reason why he is called our shelter, because we find peace in his presence. Not peace from this world. And so can I remind you that when we temporarily lose sight of him, he has not lost sight of us. When we occasionally have deleted him from the equation of life, and so it's just me versus my circumstance, that God hasn't like vanished, he's still there. You just say, hey, I'm still here. I still got this. We're never alone. God is with us. Satan acknowledges even that. The servant acknowledges that. And him, Job, acknowledges it. Will we? Should we? As we go out and encounter a world filled with skeptics, 
who need to be reminded that this was a nation founded under God. And he is still on his throne. And he is still alive. And he still has a plan. Let's go live it. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy. There is no doubt. There is none like you. In the circumstances of life, they come, they go, and you still are. Calamity comes and calamity goes, and people come and people go, and you still are. Our trials are here and our trials are there, and you're always here with us. What have we to fear when God is in control? So, Lord, I pray that we will step up as your people, that we will gather not confidence in our precautions, but in our God. That our confidence would not be rooted in the common sense things that we need to be doing, but in the great acknowledgement that you know already, and you know us. And our days are not going to be changed one iota by any virus that comes into our world. So, Lord, to you be the glory. To you be the praise. To you be the honor that you're the God who is and always will be. Settle us in you. May we not base our peace and our confidence on the things around us because that is one roller coaster of a ride but instead in the rock that you are the fortress the refuge the shelter so to you be all the glory we pray in your name amen You have just finished listening to a sermon audio recording from Fellowship Baptist Church of Dublin, Ohio. For more information about our ministries or to support our mission efforts, please visit www.fbcdublin.org.